At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The mighty Bank for International Settlements is an anchor in the international monetary system. It is a standard-setting international organization whose members are comprised of central banks. And as such, the BIS is one of the pivotal global players in the conversation on all things financial and regulatory. And the institution has just come out with a new report, aptly entitled The Future Monetary System, that takes aim at crypto and makes the case for central bank digital currencies instead. So, to talk about the report, I am delighted to have back on the show Yoon Song Shen, the Princeton economics professor who went to the BIS as its economic advisor or chief economist. Last year, he wowed listeners with his work on CBDCs, and now we'll be getting an up-close look at the newest research from his team that's making heads turn all around the world. Yoon, thanks so much for making it back on the show. Hi, Chris. It's great to reconnect. All right. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about this paper, which really reads like a blueprint for the monetary system, which I guess is the point. It's part of the BIS's uh, annual report, which gives it a special degree of prominence. But maybe you could just take a minute just to highlight the big ideas. Yeah, Chris. The, um, so what we are doing here is really to paint uh, a very broad picture of what we think is the ultimate destination of the future monetary system. And you know, although uh, you know, as you say quite rightly, it uh, it riffs off the the crypto discussion. The bulk of the chapter is really focusing on on the role of central bank money in providing a kind of core of trust around which uh, all the enhanced capabilities can be built on top. Well, then let's talk about it. As you mentioned, uh, you talk a good deal about the idea of trust which, on the one hand, is an economic idea because you obviously have to trust the central bank when you're a world of uh, fiat currencies. But there's also a political layer to it and even a sociological layer. And, and trust is something that has to be earned and designed at the same time, which is how I think you posit the context for talking about CBDCs and, and crypto, which is interesting. Zooming out just a bit, uh, is this something that is a natural outgrowth of the work of the BIS, or is it a product of conversations with BIS members like the Federal Reserve and ECB in response to developments in Bitcoin or stablecoin markets? Yeah, I think um, it's very much the uh, looking at the longer term issue, some of the principles, if you like, rather than being too influenced by the ups and downs of markets and uh, uh, and some of the uh, um, you know more urgent financial stability questions. I think those financial stability questions, consumer protection issues, 
those are clearly very important and they do deserve uh, some more urgent attention. But the longer term issues to do with the principles uh, behind the monetary system, uh, you know, I think they go deeper and, uh, you know, they're more timeless, if you like. And, uh, and so the chapter really, um, you know, starts off by just, uh, you know, laying out some of the principles we think are very important. And, uh, and those principles are, are going to be important, uh, you know, whether the market is up or whether the market is down. Now, you mentioned, you know, what are, what are some of these principles? I think, and, and you mentioned trust uh, earlier. You know, I think we can certainly take a lesson from uh, the fact that stable coins have played uh, a really important role uh, in the crypto universe. And I think that does say a lot about this, uh, you know, the search for a unit of account, the search for a nominal anchor, as it were, in the, in the crypto universe. And the fact that you know, uh, if central bank money didn't exist, it would need to be invented, uh, you know, even in the crypto universe. And I think that does tell tell us a lot. That sort of tells us volumes about the way that central banks, uh, you know, their basic function is to provide the unit of account in the economy. And if you think about it, that unit of account uh, and the trust that's embodied in that unit of account is something that uh, you know, you know, from that promise follows every other promise in the economy. And I think that's very, very telling. And so we, we actually uh, you know, thought that was a very telling feature of crypto. And then we dug a little bit deeper into some of the longer term issues. Uh, of course, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of uh, attention now on, on the recent market turmoil, the fact that uh, you know, have this very complex ecosystem of leverage and uh, illiquidity and maturity mismatch that's all embedded in the system. And so you have all these kind of run-like phenomena that is, uh, uh, you know, that was very, very apparent. But if you think about the way that the whole system works and in crypto, it's, uh, it's something that operates under the banner of decentralization. And so what that means is it has to be self-sustaining without uh, some kind of trusted intermediary at the center. And so in economics uh, terms, what you're looking for is an equilibrium. You know, it's something that has to be self-sustaining. And what that actually entails is giving sufficient incentives to the validators, uh, you know, whether they be you know, miners in Bitcoin uh, or, uh, or other validators in a proof-of-stake system. They have to be, if you like, channeling, you know, they have to be the recipients of rents that are generated in the system. And so uh, you know, one of the consequences of this is congestion. You know, we've, we've looked at congestion uh, and that was very, very apparent in, uh, you know, in Ethereum and in some of the other blockchains last year. Uh, and that actually opened the door to these uh, so-called newer layer ones uh, that exploited the high fees and congestion to actually barge in and actually grab market share. And as you know, Terra, the Terra blockchain, was a very, very rapidly growing part of that. Now, if you just uh, pause to think about that, that's a very weird phenomenon if you think about the way that, that the monetary system would work because money is a coordination device. That's to say, you know, there's a virtuous circle between greater use and greater acceptance. So the more people use it, there's, there's greater acceptance and the more there is acceptance, there is greater use. And typically what that means is there is one medium around which everyone coalesces. And that is, you know, that becomes a convention. And typically, you know, that is, that is the way we think about money. It's a coordination device. But the fact that the whole system was fragmented like this 
So if you look at the chapter, one of the things that we highlight is that uh, in DeFi, um, in early last year, Ethereum was pretty much 100% of all the the value locked, uh, you know, on the layer ones. By uh, I, I guess early this year, you know, up until early May of this year, uh, the share of Ethereum in the share of uh, value locked in the layer ones actually fell to 50%. It actually fell to a half. And instead, you had all these newer layer ones come in and uh, and took market share. And you saw this great fragmentation. You do spend a lot of time talking about the splintering of the cryptocurrency markets. It's something that we've talked about earlier on the show. Um, but maybe you can tell us what is the regulatory or economic significance of it from your standpoint. Whenever we see fragmentation like this, where you have many, many candidates for uh, the new standard, and uh, they end up actually fragmenting the system rather than you know, one standard emerging uh, around which everyone coalesces, that actually doesn't look very much like a monetary system. And so that was something that we really took uh, to heart when we thought about how we could design some of the uh, the great functionalities, which you know, crypto has certainly highlighted, but on the basis of trust um, and on the basis of the, you know, of the sort of solid foundation for money that comes from the central bank, and so that's what we spend the rest of the chapter on. Maybe we can get into some of the details there, Chris. But uh, so that's roughly the, uh, you know, the logic that we took in the chapter. What I think is particularly interesting about your framework is that. When we talk about money and when I teach about money, you know, you, you tend to think of the three great features of money, you know, account, uh, story value, medium of exchange. But I think most of us on the front lines, and I'm certainly guilty of this, really stress those last two features, store value, medium of exchange, but not really unit of account. And the fact that you do make sense, especially from your vantage point at the BIS and as the central banker, central banker, but it's really very interesting for mine. And when I'm listening to you creating this framework based off of unit of account analysis, I'm hearing words like equilibrium and fragmentation, uh, which really do highlight uh, one of the differences in a crypto monetary system, if I'm understanding UL and, and, and the traditional monetary system. But you are an economist, one of the world's great economists, and I had a question about fragmentation. Um, there have been many different iterations in history of the global monetary system. Um, you can think of when we had the gold standard, and then we ended up uh, splintering off uh, into varying fiat currencies in the 1970s. Uh, how much fragmentation is there in the real-world monetary system as compared to cryptocurrencies? Uh, does it look analytically different? You know, what we have now in the, in, in the global monetary system, is that fragmentation somehow analytically different from what we have with cryptocurrencies? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. So it's, it's certainly true that historically there have been, if you like, epochs of uh, you know, monetary arrangements uh, you know, from, from commodity money, and then, you know, even in the era of central bank money, we've had, you know, shifts in the leadership in global currencies, uh, you know, from sterling in the 19th and early 20th century to the U.S. dollar, you know, subsequently. But what you see there is that, uh, um, you know, they are, if you like, shifts in leadership 
the shifts in the epoch, uh, the transition from uh, from one era to the next, rather than the type of fragmentation you see. So the so when I said fragmentation, what that what I was trying to get at was this idea that you've got simultaneously you know thousands of uh, of crypto coins jostling for attention. You know the at the latest count, you know ten thousand crypto coins. That's a fairly conservative estimate. I mean, you can go to Coin Market Cap, and there, you know, they they're all there. Uh, presumably, there are many more that are not there, uh, and that sort of you know that's a kind of simultaneous uh, you know jostling for attention. And just going back to the to the DeFi fragmentation I was referring to earlier. Remember, you know, in early 2021, Ethereum was just dominant. Yeah, uh, it was sort of 99 percent plus. Of the value locked on the you know locked on the blockchain, but then what you saw was gas fees go up because it became such a popular platform. And remember, congestion is a feature, not a bug, in that kind of platform. Because what you want to do is to have a system where there is enough uh, rents that are channeled to the validators. Yeah, if you didn't have those rents, it, the system would not work. And if you just remember uh, the, the the Bitcoin block size wars, Chris. A few years back, that fork didn't happen. Even though, you know, technically speaking, if you had a you know more, if you had a larger capacity, presumably you could uh, you, you know you could get Bitcoin to work better as a currency. But um, you know, one of the big drawbacks of, uh, of of increasing block size was that you're going to be losing all that uh, uh, you know all the rents that are going to go to the miners. And if you lose the rents, the whole system. Then loses the glue that actually ties things together. So I'm really here approaching this like an economist looking at this problem from the point of view of game theory and the payoffs that actually go to the validators. So to sustain the equilibrium, you need to give enough rents. Now, what that means is, and and so what we saw in DeFi coming into this year was that you had all of these newer layer ones, you know, Solana, Terra, all of these guys came in. They actually had larger capacity. They could, uh, you know, go to lower costs, and they gained market share very rapidly. Until, of course, earlier this month, you know, earlier in May, when the when the Terra blockchain blew up. But you know that kind of phenomenon where within a year you went from a situation where one platform was just dominant, and if that were money, you would just see that self perpetuating because it, you know with money there is this virtuous circle. The more people use it. The more people want to use it, and 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 therefore it just becomes dominant. Um, whereas here it's quite the opposite. So the way that you, uh, I mean, we we use this uh, catchphrase where we say, you know, in in the case of money, we tend to think of no, uh, the more the merrier, uh, in the sense that you know there is there the more people use it, the more acceptance there is. In the case of crypto, uh, you have the more the sorrier. In that, you know, the more people use it, the higher the fees go, and therefore everyone is uh, you know pushed out to these alternative layer ones. And I think that that for us is really a kind of you know uh, very very fundamental structural feature that's quite separate from all the financial stability, you know, the run like phenomena, all the turmoil that we've seen. That's really an interesting observation. When you think about the winner take all qualities of a monetary system, you get. The phenomenon that the more ubiquitous the money, uh, there are more network externalities, right? There are reasons why everyone is using it, if for no other reason than the fact that everybody else is using it. But is this always a good feature in money? 
is everyone working from your reasoning here always happy? That's a, that's a really, really important observation, Chris. And I think the winner take all, the way that you put it, I think does highlight you know the dark side of this, especially if the governance is not uh, uh, you know fully in place, because network effects, coordination device, provided they can be you know channeled and governed in a way that serves the public interest, that's of course what we want. But of course, you know these are exactly the features that we worry about when we have you know big tech dominance, and you have platform economics, and you have these kind of tipping phenomena. Uh, where you know, if the objective is not for the public interest, but rather for private profit, uh, it's about market dominance. Then, of course, we should be worried, and quite rightly worried. And I think this is where the network effects of money really, uh, you know, uh, meets the governance questions. Where, if uh, you have the central bank, you know, right at the center of this uh, this kind of system, this is an accountable public institution. And, uh, you know, they are answerable to society. Uh, and, you know, there will be checks and balances. And there will be the, if you like, the political process that actually makes sure that they're actually, you know, accountable. And um, it also means that, uh, yes, um, you know, under, underneath everything, you know, there is this coordination device. But at the customer-facing level, and this is, you know, where we can perhaps go into some of the details of the chapter, Chris, at the customer-facing level, it's the private sector institutions that are actually, you know, providing the customer serving activities. And there, one of the key themes that we explore is the importance of interoperability, right? Where the private sector service providers, if they want to serve, uh, you know, their customers um, by channeling central bank money into this conventional financial system, CBDCs, et cetera, then they have to play by the rules. And uh, the rule book says that, uh, you know, whatever you do, uh, of course, you know, you need to use your ingenuity and creativity to serve customers better, but make sure that uh, we operate on a level playing field where, you know, entry is open, where you, we are following open standards that actually ensures competition and promotes financial inclusion. And how do we do that? Well, you know, um, technically speaking, you know, it's the things that we talked about last year, Chris, you know, things like application programming interfaces, you know, APIs that actually ensure that we have data privacy combined with, uh, with this open architecture. And so, I mean, the way we think about this, uh, and this is the metaphor that we pose as the leitmotif for the whole chapter, and that is that we should think of the whole system like a tree. So the solid trunk of the tree is uh, the foundation for the system provided by central bank money. The large branches are the private sector players, and the, it's the private sector players who ultimately will serve society, will serve the customers. But everyone should be playing by the rules, and the rule book, right? The rule book is something that has to be written with the public interest in mind. Now, of course, you know, in the branches, we're going to have a very rich and diverse ecosystem of services and, uh, and other arrangements there. And there's going to be a great deal of useful innovation. We can really let those innovation flower. But it has to be all based on, uh, on the public interest rather than, let's say, getting a big tech muscling in and essentially taking over the system as a walled garden that's unaccountable through the political process to, to society itself. You know, that's the big picture, if you like. 
I'm going to try to sort of build off of this uh, conversation with some of your your earlier points, just just because I think it's it's fascinating because there's now introducing alongside your economic sort of equilibrium observation, a kind of public policy observation, right? Where you're saying, hey, look, okay, uh, right now, well, really, whether or not it's it's a sort of native cryptocurrency or whether or not it's a stable coin, you're saying, hey, look, you know, there are certain kinds of things that have to happen to keep the system intact, particularly with a decentralized system, because you need to maintain a certain uh, equilibrium. I think one of the arguments, I don't know if it's argument, or maybe a response, you know, to that would say, well, that's why we have a program or an algorithm, you know, running the system. And, 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 and you're sort of almost anticipating that by saying, yeah, but but you, you need a kind of public policy sort of embedded in how you think about how your your system runs. And you can build out a better system when you have those two intact. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, you had mentioned Terra, which, you know, just for our audience, it, it, it's really kind of interesting because for, from my standpoint, you kind of see a stable coin system that's not really built on a computer program, but it, it's really dependent on certain kinds of market operations, right? Like, you know, and, and, and those market operations didn't happen or they, 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 they didn't work. And when that didn't work, then it had a spillover of impact on, in terms of how the stable coin was supposed to, to function. And then everything, you know, as you had mentioned, it, it sort of ballooned really quickly and then it kind of exploded pretty quickly, but there was no, sort of, you know, explicit sort of public policy, and then, you know, how that relates to the other cryptocurrencies or stable coins, you say that there needs to be a, a bit of a glue sort of in, in place. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, you know, the glue needs to be there. Um, and the glue is there to keep the, uh, the elements of the system together that actually makes the whole thing, uh, you know, self-sustaining. I mean, Bitcoin is is a very, very good example of this. And the fact that it's actually now uh, survived for so long, you know, just gives you a sense of the um, of the strength of those uh, forces that actually keep the whole thing together, right? It's uh, it, it, from, from the outcome, of course, uh, you know, it has many features that, uh, you know, its uh, capacity is small, you know, it is very uh, wasteful on, on energy use and so on. But the fact that the whole thing is uh, self-sustaining just gives you a sense that uh, you know when Satoshi Nakamoto, when he they you know, uh, were you know designing this, that um, it is a very good example of what an equilibrium would look like. So, if you're a miner or if you're a user, following the Bitcoin protocol turns out to be exactly the thing you need to do to actually maximize your self-interest. But when everyone does that, the whole thing is self-sustaining. Uh, right when you hitch the uh, the block, you hitch it to the uh, to the longest chain. You know that's the you know that's the rule, and it turns out that that is exactly what uh, you know you should do if everyone else follows that rule because you know and that is the definition of an equilibrium. And once you have an equilibrium, it is self-sustaining. You don't need an external party that tells you what to do. Now, uh, Chris, as you know, uh, and as uh, as all the economists uh, you know listening would know. Just because something is an equilibrium doesn't mean that it's very desirable, right? You can have equilibria that are very strong, very you know, are very resilient, but um, in terms of their welfare properties, you could have ended up in a far better place, right? And so uh, when you approach this from a public policy perspective, you're engaging in a much you know deeper design problem, saying you know let's not be 
tied to this agenda where it has to be self-sustaining in a decentralized way. Suppose that you can actually uh, rely on a trusted central bank, yeah, who can actually provide the unit of account and you can actually build on top of it. Well, that's a hugely liberating experience uh, from the point of view of a design exercise. Now, some of your listeners might say, well, you know, uh, you know, how can it be liberating if you have an authority? Well, I mean, that's a debate. That's a, you know, that's a separate debate. That's a much deeper debate. But I think everyone, uh, well, pretty much everyone, uh, would be comfortable with having a trusted authority that's publicly accountable. And once you have that, you're in a hugely more advantageous position in designing the system. You don't need to be you know, tying one hand behind your back to design these elaborate equilibria. And you mentioned terror, um, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be terror. Uh, you know, there could be you know, uh, even, a, even an asset-backed stablecoin. That is still a stablecoin. And uh, what that means is you're actually you know, in search of a nominal anchor, uh, and you're trying to reproduce it, and you're ultimately piggybacking off the, the credibility provided by central bank money. I mean, that is uh, you know, what it is. Why would you piggyback if you, have a, you know, if you have the real thing? And the real thing can actually you know, give you most of the advantages. So I think you know, one thing that we, we really emphasize in this chapter, uh, and, and this is the big leap from last year's chapter, Chris, is that uh, we actually go into quite a lot of detail in what this system would look like. And you know our philosophy is that look you know crypto's rise has, has been a remarkable phenomenon. It's because it's galvanized this debate. We get this glimpse of all the exciting things that you can do in these kind of um, in these platforms. It's just that uh, you know you're building a very interesting set of features onto an ultimately flawed platform. Why not do it in a much more secure platform where you can get everything? You can get smart contracts. You can get composability uh, and atomic settlement, and you can get um, tokenization of real assets that actually use real names, right? So, so you can actually tokenize houses, and you can actually, you know, uh, have the legal wrapper where the ownership of the house transfers under your real name. Uh, why not, uh, you know, do that than try and uh, do everything with private keys? If you can use tokenization with real names. You can pay uh, and have a smart contract where uh, you know the buyer uh, you know transfers the funds only when the title is transferred. For the seller, uh, you know you only transfer the title only when the funds arrive. And then you have you know the agents. Then you have you can do the uh, uh, you know you can do the due diligence. Uh, are there any uh, unpaid taxes? Are there any other liens on the house? You can do all of that with one smart contract. And you don't have to use crypto for that. And indeed, trying to use crypto for that kind of thing would be really, really difficult because you know, how do you actually register your private key to the, uh, you know, to the property registry? And there's a big gulf there, which uh, you, know, you can really then bridge with, uh, with smart contracts using CBDCs. And so you know, uh, when you, going back to the, the vision of the tree, you've got the trunk of the tree, you've got uh, central bank money there, You've got the big branches, uh, commercial banks, non-bank PSPs, and then you go all the way to the uh, to the end branches. You know, you can have music streamers, Internet of Things. You can pay these micro payments, uh, you know, without uh, paying huge, uh, you know, credit card, you know, merchant fees. Of course, you know, the reason why those services were not uh, being being offered was because you know um, there were big chunks taken out of the service providers. 
if you have really, really cheap payments, uh, you can have a you know flowering of these kind of services, music stream, you know, music streaming, everything, yeah, uh, micro payments, and everything can be done on the basis of real names. Everything can be done on the basis of central bank money that everyone trusts, and it doesn't have all these uh, you know the these uh, flaws that crypto has. As we round the corner on this conversation, I did want to end with a question. I am someone who is not just a student of crypto, but a student of the history of the Bank for International Settlements and a stoddy, non-ambitious agenda this is not. I mean, you're laying out a very ambitious vision about how you're thinking about money. And there are uh, some real similarities in the themes that I'm hearing in your conversations that you may also hear in cryptocurrency conversations, conversations about money as a base layer infrastructure. You're, you're using words like tokenized money, um, you're observing um, atomic settlement systems, and you're really introducing a very forward-looking vision as to what you want money to do. When you think about the BIS as being this focal point between very different central banks, very different central banks with very different histories, with very different aspirations and places in the international economy. Um, you know, you have issuers of global money, uh, you have issuers of regional money. Some central banks are just trying to get by and other central banks are failing. When you think about the diversity of membership, how attractive do you think this vision of money will be for central banks? Especially given, again, they're very different places in the global economy. Yeah, Chris, you've really, I think, laid out a very, very important set of questions there. And you know, firstly, I mean, the short answer is that we're here to serve our members, but the, you know, but our members are actually public institutions. You know, they in turn are all accountable public institutions. And it's certainly the case that every jurisdiction, every country has to go through that public consultation. There has to be that public debate. So whatever we do, uh, you know, it's going to keep pace with that public consultation. You know, we, we're not here to foist, uh, you know, some kind of agenda on uh, on unwilling publics on this. We're here to just to, you know, lay out the possibility, just say, you know, here are the, here are the things that are feasible. I mean, going back to your first point about how radical this vision is, I mean, I would actually say it's not that radical in that uh, this is a very, very natural evolution of the notion of money based on uh, you know central bank balance sheets, you know that I you know we've uh, we've worked on the Bank of Amsterdam. Bank of Amsterdam. If you open up Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, there's a very long discussion of the Bank of Amsterdam, and you know what um, what they did was actually to provide the very first notion of uh, if you like uh, settlement on the books of a deposit bank, a payment bank, if you like. Uh, where you know you had these bills of exchange that were facilitating international trade, and the Bank of Amsterdam, uh, you know, set up in 1605, they actually allowed the settlement of these uh, financial instruments. And of course, in those days, um, you know, you use paper ledgers, but the operations are exactly the same, uh, whether it's electronic or whether it's on paper. You debit the account of the payer, and you credit the account of the receiver. And uh, you know that the whole tree is ultimately rooted in the settlement on the central bank balance sheet. The, I mean, the the idea of the tree is to draw attention to this idea that settlement is rooted 
in in that final you know uh, um in the finality of the payments and so what this means is that uh, you know uh, uh in spite of all of these uh you know very exciting technical possibilities it's actually a very very standard and very classical notion we're talking about it's the settlement on the central bank balance sheet but um the the experience for the users is going to be very rich if you open your phone and do all of these things it's going to be exactly the same as if it was you know as if it's a service provided by big tech or if it's uh, you know on on some of the crypto platforms as well but the underlying architecture is the classical one and it's the one that's publicly accountable so i think this is what we really feel is an important uh, uh, you know vision that it's something that is true to the historical missions of central banks and one final thing and this goes back to the bis's role you know i i said that each monetary system is a tree but of course you know if you zoom out what you see is a forest and think of the canopy of the forest where the branches come together that canopy of the forest is if you like the multi cbdc platforms it's a decentralized system it needs to be decentralized because you need to have a governance structure that has more than one central bank and therefore more than one currency and the canopy is if you like technically now feasible uh, because of dlt because of tokenization and chris you know uh, the bis you know our name is the bank for international settlement it's, it's it's exactly what it says on the tin uh, we are about international settlement uh, you know that's our history and that's why we were set up but um this uh, chapter is saying look you know let's go back to that vision and this was a tour de force and uh we really can't say enough about how much we appreciate you dropping by the beat it was such a treat for our audience thanks chris it's uh, fantastic to to join you as always Nothing gets as personal as money, and as you mentioned, it's a reason why innovation in money is changing at warp speed. Now, what is really interesting in this report, and it is a must-read, is that even innovation may have its natural constraints technologically. And if that's the case, maybe there's an important and indeed critical place for public digital infrastructure. Of course, as a Washingtonian, I am all too familiar with other limitations that may have very little to do with the technology. And ultimately, my hunch is that the binding constraints for what is possible for crypto stablecoins and CBDCs may be far more political in nature than technical. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>